Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Have, have any good dreams lately? No. No? No. That's a shame. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I ruin something for you here? Just the segue. Uh, so, so instead, let's just get to it. Okay. It's been a while since we did an art movement, and so I thought I'd get right back to one uh, we teased, I think, last time we did one. We're going to talk about uh, those 1920s weirdos. Oh, uh, yeah. The Surrealists. Yeah. So, Tell me about those Surrealists. <laughs> how familiar are you with the, the Surrealists and Surrealism? What is? What do you think of when you hear the words? Well, I took a class in college. Mm-hmm. On theater history, we definitely covered surrealism. I don't remember a lot, other than it's weird. <laughs> it's like Dada. It's it is, weird. It's a lot. It's a lot like Dada. So let's go to 1920s Paris. Paris, place to be for weird art. The First World War has just ended, and much of society is attempting to continue as it was before the war. Uh, radicals in the avant-garde thinks that's bunk. Yeah. Uh, society as it was led the world directly into the war. The, the 41 million dead, the gas, the famine, these were all perfectly legal events that, that followed from perfectly logical choices. Mm -hmm. So why, why should we go back to that? What good was it before? What kind of idiot do you have to be to, to think we even could or ought to? Yeah. Look way back to episode 19, where we talked about the Dada movement for more on that sort of yeah. perspective. Uh, in fact, surrealism did come out of Dada. Uh, Dada founder, promoter, and central figure Tristan Zara moved to Paris in 1919 to, to join the editing team of the magazine Literatura uh, with André Breton, uh, Philippe Suppot, and uh, Louis Aragon. Mm -hmm. And this magazine and, and this band of collaborators are seen today as the founding of the Surrealist movement. Uh -huh. Much of the French art community scattered by the war were returning, and many of them had been involved with Dada in the, the meantime. Yes. Uh, Breton and Zara had been collaborating for almost 10 years, but they didn't have the best relationship, especially by this point. Yeah. So the, the Dadaists held a trial against uh, Maurice Barr, a French author, politician, and ethno-nationalist, mm -hmm. and sentenced him to 20 years forced labor. Breton took it seriously, while Zara recognized the authority of no justice system whatsoever, even one made as a piece of performance art by his own movement. Mm -hmm. In 1921, Breton attempted to convene a Congress for the Determination of the Defense of the Modern Spirit. The name's even longer in French. Yeah, they really like their long names. <laughs> They're way into that. It was this great big conference to determine the future of the various modern movements in the European arts. There were, there were modernists there, and there were Cubists that got invited, and... Uh, by this time, Breton and some of his friends were, were doing their own thing within Dada. But, of course, Zara got an invitation uh, to, to be part of the planning committee as this big figurehead of greater Dadaism. Mm -hmm. And believing in the anarchism of Dada, refused. 
but showed up anyway just to ridicule the whole thing. At the committee meetings, Breton took the chance to slag Zara whenever he could and never even referred to him by name, but like, we all knew. That dude. That Romanian artist who who lives around here. We know who you mean, Andre. We get it. Zara responded with a, a manifesto, The Bearded Heart, and a, a big night of performances uh, by the same name, like the Gala of the Bearded Heart. Mm-hmm. The, the manifesto was a call to uh, shun and exile Breton from the community, and the, the Gala was just a big old presentation of... of Good Dadaism. Yeah. Uh, Breton and his allies were in the audience, of course. At one point in the festivities, unannounced, uh, Pierre de Masseau took the stage and read a list of names, quote, fallen on the field of honor. Uh, they were all artists that did not live up to the ideal of true Dada. Uh, the second name on the list was Pablo Picasso, and like murmurs of outrage went <gasps> through the crowd. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? Breton ran up with his cane and broke Masseau's arm. Yes. Things calmed down a bit and the show went on. Uh, <laughs> After someone's arm got broken with a cane. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's, we're, we're all There's nothing to see here. here. Move along. It's fine. So, so the last piece that was actually performed at this gala was Zara's play The Gas Heart. This is a famed piece of, of Dadaist theater. It's written in three acts, though it's shorter than your average one act, and it's various body parts having conversations with each other. Breton again leapt up, began shouting and, and breaking furniture, and a riot broke out. They had to call the police to quell a riot. This happens a lot. The, the performers were in angular cardboard costumes and left it defenseless. <laughs> They could not run or, or you know, block the blows no. raining down on them. No, they could not. This riot is considered the end of Parisian Dada and really one of the ends of Dadaism as a whole. Yeah. And also the moment surrealism came into its own. I feel like I had to do some school project with that play. The, the gas heart. Yeah. I think there was a thing we had to do. <laughs> I don't remember what it was, but I feel like I had a project that was graded on that I had to, like, interpret it or, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. do my own interpretation of it or... Well, I hope you had fun. I don't know. Maybe? <laughs> that was a weird class. So so there's this rift in uh, the Paris Dada and, and modern art circles, and, and some of them are calling themselves surrealists. What is surrealism, though? Surreal, man. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a movement about irrationality and, and the bizarre, and specifically dream logic and dream imagery. Freud was a big influence, like free association, anything to do with dreams, and the unconscious mind or, or major tools and themes for this movement that was about puncturing and and moving beyond reality and Mm -hmm. fusing the waking world with the dream world and which one is really more real man depends on how you look at it man so it's about freeing people from norms and restrictions and traditions and hierarchies uh which is something it, it definitely invested from its data roots 
And these also allied the movement with uh, communism and anarchism. Many, many of the surrealists, I'd say all but one, uh, were card-carrying members of communist parties, usually the French Communist Party, since they were a Parisian group. Mm -hmm. But to be an art movement, one must have a manifesto. Of course! And so Breton wrote the first in 1924. He also wrote the second and third. I think I said it in the Dada episode. People do not use manifestos enough now. No, no. It's a lost art, I feel like, in the art movement. Mm -hmm. Now it's just like, here's our motto. Mm -hmm. Like, no, write a full, like, ten-page manifesto. Come on. Uh, the Surrealist Manifesto, uh, Breton's first, uh, at least, is written first person, like, these are my thoughts, Andre Breton, even though it is signed by everyone who was allied with him at the time. Uh-huh. And it's mostly concerned with dreams themselves and their transformative power, uh, transformative in art and in the world at large. Uh, there are digressions into artists they recognize who were doing surrealism before there was the word. I was doing it before it was cool, man. L Lewis Carroll, for one. Yeah. A natural fit. It also includes two simple sample definitions. Uh, the first is for the dictionary, surrealism, noun, pure psychic automatism by which it is intended to express, either verbally or in writing, the true function of thought. Thought dictated in the absence of all control exerted by reason and outside all aesthetic or moral preoccupations. The second was an encyclopedia definition. A philosophy. Surrealism is based on the belief in the superior reality of certain forms of association heretofore neglected in the omnipotence of the dream and in the disinterested play of thought. It leads to the permanent destruction of all other psychic mechanisms and to its substitution for them in the solution of the principal problems of life. Very simple. Very clear. We, we all get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, child's play. <laughs> now, I've, I've been calling this the first Surrealist Manifesto, but that's not quite true. <gasps> you uh, lied to us? I lied just like two minutes ago. I lied. I, I don't know how I can ever trust you again. <laughs> there was a This on our 13th anniversary. Oh, there was... I'm betrayed. I'm so betrayed. <laughs> Parisian artist Ivan Gol published his own Manifeste du Surrealisme, uh, two weeks earlier. Yeah. Uh, Zara co-signed it, among others. So why isn't Goal the founder of the movement? Because it wasn't as good. <laughs> Goal helped dancer Valesta Gert get booked at the uh, Comédie des Champs-Élysées to perform, quote, surrealist dances. Th this was not the title. This was just like part of the playbill, part of the advertising. They were presented as surrealist dances. Mm -hmm. So Breton showed up, fought Goal on stage, and let everyone know, on no uncertain terms, that he decided what surrealism meant and who was a surrealist and anyone who felt otherwise would have to answer to him. I really like to fight. Oh, he, he was a fighting boy. He That cane. Brandished that thing. Once, a few years down the road, Breton sent a letter to a journalist who used the term too loosely. Uh, the letter read, We would like to notify you once and for all that if you give yourself the right to use the word surrealism spontaneously and without notifying us, more than 15 of us will be there to cruelly set you right. <laughs> These were some two-fisted artists. Yeah. What did they do, though? What did they do? 
mentioned in in that dictionary definition was the word automatism, right? Pure psychic automatism. Uh Uh-huh. Automatism was a, a major tool of theirs, automatic writing, automatic drawing, otherwise creating freely, trying to, to turn off your conscious mind and let the hand go and, and let the unconscious mind uh, be, be the driving creator. Exquisite corpse works also pushed that boundary. You could collaborate without a plan, so there was no guiding rationality. Uh-huh. Uh, Just, I do this, and I hand it off to you, and you do that, and you hand it off to person number three. And in the end, we have an artwork that none of us really made, but it's it's certainly there. You can't deny that. Like, you can read it. You can look at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Bureau of Surrealist Research served as both a a headquarters for the movement and an open house for anyone to participate. And I, I mean anyone. This was open to the general public. They were invited to come in and, and share stories of dreams or or their secrets or uh, just weird coincidences they saw out in their day, any sort of surreal thought. They get a lot of participation because I feel like these people would just be scared of like someone coming after them with a cane. Yeah. No, like, not no, a lot. No, it doesn't count. They're, they're like filing cabinets ready and waiting to, to create a library of surrealist uh, uh, images and thoughts. And the, they never really filled them, <laughs> but they were there. <laughs> you know what? I bet it has something to do with the swinging cane. <laughs> the effort of the Bureau was to gather all the information possible related to forms that might express the unconscious activity of the mind. Uh-huh. So, so at this point, at least, surrealism was not an aesthetic or even an art movement, but a field of study uh, to learn about the world below what we can see rationally and apply that to erase the distinction and, and synthesize the two. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a very modern way of thinking, a very modernist way of thinking, you know, turning the intangible into a rigorous field of study. Like, uh, that's basically what the, the founders of the various social sciences did. Mm-hmm. Or, again, back to Freud himself. Yeah. And so in, in the, the first few years after the manifesto, after the foundation of the Bureau, there was debate in the group about whether paintings and, and visual arts could even be surrealist, mm-hmm. which is odd because, you know, looking back now, the most popular surrealist works are all paintings. Well, yeah. And a few sculptures. Because those live on. Yeah, yeah. Those exist and no, you can see them now. Nobody really reads Breton's uh, poetry or automatic writing as much as they look at a Dali. Yeah. Yeah. But new techniques that, that excited the uh, surrealists like uh, frottage or, or repurposing uh, data collage techniques and, and cut-ups helped bridge that gap. Uh, frottage was when you would uh, put your, your paper or your canvas on some surface and make rubbings and, and try to, to build something out of that image that didn't come from your conscious mind. It just came from the world around you. Huh. Uh, there, there were other stamping-related techniques for, for, like, paint or paint scraping that, that came out, out of this sort of vein of thought that, that also found their home in surrealist visual art. 
But film and photography, they really embraced once they saw what it could do. Uh, fast motion, slow motion, layered exposures, fades in and out, collage techniques, uh, shocking imagery, special effects. Mm-hmm. Film, I think, might be the surrealist art form. <laughs> yeah, it allows for so much possibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's certainly the, the medium where the most enduring surrealist work is still being done, even to this day. Yes. Twin Peaks, baby. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So during the 30s, the the group grew in size and notoriety. Dali had joined. uh, Brunel, Magritte were in town. Max Ernst, they, they had all become big draws in the art world by the end of the 1930s. Uh, which is when Breton organized the Exposition Internationale du Surrealisme at uh, the Gallery Beaux-Arts. This was far from the first surrealist exposition, but it was the first where the event itself would be a surrealist piece. Ah. It, it started before you even got there. The forecourt outside featured Rain Taxi, one of Dali's uh, physical installation pieces. The old automobile was covered with ivy inside and out, and a female dummy with disheveled hair and dressed in an evening gown sat between some heads of lettuce and chicory in the back of the car. Next to her was a sewing machine. The driver was a doll whose head was framed by the mouth of a shark and whose eyes were covered by a a pair of dark glasses. The interior was constantly sprayed with water so that the clothes of the lady were drenched and the blonde wig dissolved into felted strands, while some edible snails, visible on the lady's neck, left their slimy traces. Seems like art to me. Yeah. That, that's definitely the sort of thing where all, all the fine ladies and gentlemen in their evening wear will come for a cultured evening. This also sounds like something that would be outside of some strange bar. Yeah. <laughs> nowadays, like, it's like their gimmick. Past rain taxi came uh, uh, the entrance hall, which was an installation called The Most Beautiful Streets in Paris. Uh, It was 16 mannequins, each dressed by a different surrealist, hiding their own preoccupations and subconscious desires. A lot of them were very erotic, very scandalous. Mm -hmm. Look this up. See if you can maybe find some pictures, because they did some wild things to mannequins. (laughs) The the idea of a mannequin was a a really long-running motif in a lot of surrealism. Uh, The form of a person, but not a person. Yeah. Uh, the, The main... Hall of the uh, exposition was designed to look like a dank cave. Uh, stalactites on the ceiling made from 1,200 coal bags hanging down. The floor was covered in, in dead leaves and mud from a cemetery nearby. <laughs> and the lighting was kept so low that visitors were, were handed flashlights to view the art pieces. <laughs> This being a major exposition opening in Paris, they mostly used it to look at the other people there to see who who was around. Yeah. (laughs) The opening was a success. 3,000 people attended, uh, with hundreds more each day of the exhibition. It was Surrealism's greatest success as an art movement, and also really the end of the Paris group. Mm Mm-hmm. Breton, as you might guess, not easy to get along with. No. E- each of those later manifestos he made, whether they, they were published or not, were in response to further defining and providing like purity tests for surrealists or, or casting someone out. 
He just always got pissed off and wrote a new manifesto. Basically, basically. I don't like what you're doing. Here's my new manifesto. Or mock trials, or just going to the press, or writing a piece. He had a lot of techniques for uh, uh, casting out people who didn't follow his line, Mm -hmm. Uh, including one member for being too Stalinist. And others left in solidarity. Uh, Dali was cast out for being too capitalist and supporting uh, Generalissimo Franco. Mm. So when I say all of them, but I think one were card-carrying communists, it's Dali. He was definitely not. Yeah. Many of the the Jewish members of the scene had already started fleeing overseas, uh, getting cast out from America and, and living in Cuban exile instead. And when open war came to France... Many of them left for the U.S., but not all, as we will learn soon. Oh, man. So with with that sort of history of the the movement at its height, let's take a quick break, and we'll get back with uh, talking about these folks on an individual basis. Okay. So, like I said, we, we've learned about uh, how surrealism was founded mm-hmm. and and some of its peak moments. Now let's look at these actual surrealists. Okay. So, a little more on André Breton. He was angry. A very angry man. In 1938, a few years after leaving the Communist Party because he was anti-Stalinist, uh-huh. he traveled to Mexico and met Trotsky. And together, they, they wrote the Manifesto for an Independent Revolutionary Art. Uh, however, since he was, you know, in hiding, in exile, it, it was not credited to Trotsky. He instead put Diego Rivera's name on it. Ah! Yeah. He seemed to have a good time in Mexico, Breton. He, he considered uh, Frida Kahlo a, a natural surrealist. Uh, she never took the title herself, but... That I mean, must have drove him nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, you should be proud. I will You're a surrealist. Get my... You're the best surrealist. Be a surrealist. I will get my eh. cane. I will say it's a really good manifesto. As, yeah. As far as manifestos go. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if anything can top the one Dada manifesto. Uh, he opposed French colonialism, supporting anarchist organizations and, and independence for Algeria. He eventually did return to France and died in Paris in 1966. How many people did he hit with his cane? In 1966? Probably not many. Okay. Well, probably a lot. How many arms did he break? (laughs) That's my question. Max Ernst, one of the most famous uh, uh, surrealist painters, he came over as part of the the Dadaist movement. He was involved back in those days. Uh, He did not leave Nazi-occupied France until after he was arrested by the Gestapo. And Peggy Guggenheim helped him flee to America. Oh. One of his recurring motifs was this bird monster character called Lop Lop. Lop Lop! Which was sort of a self-insert, although sometimes he was just a regular bird and, and Lop Lop was just Lop Lop. Okay, Lop Lop sounds like it could be like the cutest little like Sesame Street thing. Or it sounds like it could be um, Mr. Chuckle Teeth. <laughs> Where it's meant to be a cute little child thing, but it's really like terrifying. It's gonna murder you. Lop Lop has several guises, but many of them are nightmarish. Okay. 
Louis Aragon, the poet, he, he was one of those co-editors of a literature magazine, the, the movement's founding. Uh, he joined the French resistance during the war and organized their actions in Nazi-occupied France. Uh, he didn't break from Stalin until the mid-50s, later than a lot of these guys, which caused that rift with Breton. Uh, he stayed loyal to the international communist cause, even so. Uh, in 1971, after his wife's death, he, he came out publicly as bisexual and became a figure in the gay liberation movement of the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a, a little bit after he got his four nominations for the Nobel Prize in Literature over a seven-year period. Wow. <laughs> he never won, but they, they really liked him. He was, yeah. He was right there. <laughs> he died in 1982 in Paris on Christmas Eve. Aww. Giorgio de Chirico was a, an Italian painter, not a surrealist per se, but sort of a, of a feather with them. Uh, he painted these metaphysical scenes. He had a metaphysical period uh, in the 1910s, and the group adopted him as an inspiration. But by the time surrealism was really, you know, going and gaining steam in, in the mid to late 20s, he had moved beyond that and wanted to do classical painting and, you know, study the Renaissance masters and, you know, uh, realistic depictions of things. And was so a, they hated him then. Yeah, he was a big critic of modern art. And the surrealists, like, we love your stuff. We hate you, though. You suck. <laughs> you, you need to get with the program. What happened to you, man? <laughs> Paul Eulard was a, a poet and another founding member, uh, did a lot of that, that automatism in his work. In World War I, his job was to write to the families of the dead and wounded oh. at, at this hospital he worked at. Over 150 letters per day came from uh, Paul. Uh, at night, he dug the graves. He had regular bouts with tuberculosis. He was a rather sickly guy. I guess that's why he got the hospital job instead of a gun. Yeah. As a young man in a sanitarium, he met Gala, his first wife, his great uh, inspiration, his muse. Uh, in 1924, he just spontaneously went missing after sending a very suspicious letter to his friends, one that sounded like saying goodbye if you read between the lines sort of thing. Mm. So they all thought he was dead and gone. She found him in Saigon. What was he doing there? Chilling. Well, ain't he a winner? <laughs> uh, he died in 1952 with thousands spontaneously joining the funeral. He, he uh, through surrealism and, and uh, his post-war work, he had become a major national treasure to the poetry world. But because of his communist ties, the French government would not give him like a state-sponsored funeral, like with other major or artists or intellectuals. Uh-huh. So the French Communist Party did it themselves. And yes, thousands just came from the streets to, to honor him as he passed away. Oh. Uh, let's check in with Tristan Zara. Yeah. Uh, he did reconcile with Breton in 1929. He filmed yet another version of The Bearded Heart. And this time Breton ha had a featured role. Although I think this film might be lost. One of the many films that did not survive the decades. Yeah. Uh, he also joined the French Resistance. A collaborationist journalist passed his address on to the Gestapo, though. Oh. 
But he made it out. He survived the war. He, he lived longer than fascism and died Christmas Day, 1963, in Paris. There's, there's like a, a weird Christmas-ish theme here for oh, deaths. A little? A little bit. So that brings us to uh, Luis Buñuel, uh, the Spanish film director, one of the most lauded directors of all time on, on like top directors list. He's like top 20. Mm-hmm. And when you think of all the great directors of the 20th century, it's not too shabby. Uh, his first film ever was Un Chien Andalou in 1929, which he co-wrote with Dali. They, they met in art school in Spain and they moved to Paris together. Uh, it's that one that opens with a shot of a woman's eyeball being cut open with a razor blade. Uh! That one, you know, that uh! one. How are you able to even say that out loud? You're the one that would be like, It's a good movie. Uh, Explaining their process in creating this film, he said, quote, Our only rule was very simple. No idea or image that might lend itself to a rational explanation of any kind would be accepted. We had to open all doors to the irrational and keep only those images that surprised us without trying to explain why. Uh This was a silent film. It had no score. Uh, But during the premiere performance, uh, Buñuel played a a sequence of phonograph records that that he brought with him while his pockets were full of rocks that he brought just to to throw at the hecklers he thought would be there. (laughs) But this film was was a major smash in the avant-garde circles of Paris. It got him and Dali into the Surrealist Club. Oh, yeah. Members of the club. He was a pretty violent guy. He had rocks in his pockets. Yeah. It's clearly not disqualifying for this group. Uh, He had a falling out with Dali over their next film's politics. He wanted to make it anti-bourgeois, anti-capitalist. Dali just wanted it to be really shocking and really anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. So th- this fight led to uh, Brunel attacking Dali's girlfriend, who happened to be the lady married to Paul Goulard, who found him in, in Saigon. Uh-huh. Yeah. She became Dali's wife, one of his wives, and he bought a castle for her that uh, she, she lived in until she died in 1980. Castle's cool. <laughs> When did she become his wife? Yular in Saigon was 1924. She left Yular around uh, 1930. Okay. And married Dali not too long after that. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, they, they were good friends and she was, of everybody in the circle, she was one of the few that was like, and how are you going to feed yourselves? Uh, <laughs> she, <laughs> she was the mom of the group. She was both a muse and a business manager for many of the Paris Surrealists. Yeah. Yes. And sexual partner for many of the Paris Surrealists. <laughs> but in 1942, when Dali published an autobiography, which of course has to talk about Brunel, mm-hmm. he mentioned that Brunel was a communist. This is in 1942 when he's trying to get work in the American film industry. So he was blacklisted. Did not work. Yeah. So he went to uh, Dali's hotel room in order to give him a piece of his mind and shoot him in the kneecap. Uh. He only did one of those things. He did not follow through with his plan to shoot his former friend. Uh huh. But he definitely did plan on it. Goodness. So yeah, after not being able to, to really find a home uh, in the American film industry, the most he really did was, was managing dubs. 
mm-hmm. uh, for their Spanish language exports. Uh, he survived in the Mexican film industry, and then in the late 50s and the 60s returned to international productions, uh, which is when he made uh, his most recognized, most landmark films, at least of the ones with sound. Like, Unchien Andalou is definitely going to be his most enduring work forever. Uh-huh. But 15 of his films are included in the They Shoot Pictures, Don't They list of the 1,000 greatest of all time. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh, second only to Jean-Luc Godard, who has 16. Almost got him. Almost. So close. So if you've heard of uh, Viridiana, The Exterminating Angel, Tristana, The Phantom of Liberty, he directed those. Mm-hmm. He died in Mexico City in 1983. Next, Man Ray, the only American we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, he joined the American Dada movement after seeing uh, Marcel Duchamp's early stuff, like New Descending a Staircase, just lit his brain on fire. Yeah. And he started making his own ready-mades. One was a, a clothes iron with a bunch of tacks glued to the bottom. So both things were useless. It just became a form. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, he left for Paris uh, in order to be where the Dadas were. But when he left, the Dadas were splitting and he was there just in time for the dawn of surrealism. Ah. Lucky guy, I guess. Uh, he was primarily a, a photographer. Like I mentioned, he did make ready-mades. He was a painter. Uh, he invented rheography. And named it, clearly. Yeah. Uh, Where you'd place something on photosensitive paper before exposing it. And so you get layers and layers of of, uh, exposure for these juxtapositions. His most famous photo is probably uh, Les Violons d'Ingres, which is an image of a nude model's back with the F-holes of a violin on her skin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is both a really famous painting and a really popular back tattoo. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So we have Max Ray to thank for that. Yeah. His photography, uh, aside from, you know, his surrealist pictures, just like his portrait photography, his going out on the streets and taking pictures of people, uh, documented the lives of the circle and is sort of a historical document as well. Uh, And his day job as a fashion photographer gave him a bit more cash than everybody else he was hanging out with. Yeah. He died in 1976 in Paris. <laughs> so about that model with the, the F-stops. Yeah. Uh, her name was Alice Prynne, but she went by Kiki. Kiki. She was Kiki de Montparnasse, or the Queen of Montparnasse. Wow. Uh, she was... A lot of names. <laughs> she posed for dozens of artists, and Max Ray in particular, over and over and over again. But she did not limit herself to the Surrealists. She was a muse for anyone who was making art in 1920s Paris. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a painter in her own right, though not of the Surrealist school. Uh, She was also a lounge singer. She bought the cabaret she performed in. Nice. She wrote a a memoir in 1929, which was banned in the U.S. for 40 years for being too salacious. Oh. Like, Kiki's great. You gotta love Kiki. Just about every picture you find of her is naked, though. That's yeah. That's photography. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another name that you'd probably recognize from your school days. Antonin Artaud. Artaud, yeah. A, a dabbler in many things, though primarily the performing arts. Yeah. Some of those dabblings were him editing the, the early journals and early publications of the Surrealists. 
Uh, he wrote the scenario for The Seashell and the Clergyman, which some consider the first surrealist film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's either that or Unshen Dandelu, and it clearly influenced the latter, but whether it was surrealist itself or maybe it was expressionist, eh. it's a movie. L- enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> but he's most famous for developing the theater of cruelty. Yes. Which I guess we have a fan of in the house. We spent a lot of time on theater of cruelty. Uh, A theater in which violent physical images crush and hypnotize the sensibility of the spectator, seized by the theater as by a whirlwind of higher forces. Yeah. Words say little to the mind compared to space thundering with images and crammed with sounds. If you couldn't tell, the last couple things I said were direct quotes. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I usually don't talk like that. (laughs) Uh, he was also a drug addict and went to Mexico for a peyote ceremony to try to, like, break the cycle and, and get into recovery. Oh. It didn't work. No. Uh, in 1937, he went to Ireland because of a walking stick. Like a s- stick or, like, the bug? Like a stick. Like a mobility aid. Oh. Yes. Uh, a friend bought him a walking stick from, like, a flea market, and he looked at it, and he just knew in his heart it was the walking stick of Jesus Christ, <laughs> which uh, he used to, to brandish when he was being tempted in the desert by Lucifer himself. And the very same walking stick which made its way to St. Patrick and was thought destroyed by Protestants in 1538. He's got a lot of opinion on that stick. It was his solemn duty to return it to its homeland and lay it at St. Patrick's tomb. Yeah. He lost the stick in Ireland. Oh. And was deported as an undesirable alien. The stick was never recovered. Well, hear that, all our listeners in Ireland. You have a stick to find that belonged to Jesus. It may have belonged to Jesus. It definitely belonged to Anton Artaud. Yes. Uh, He died in a psychiatric clinic in 1948 in a suburb of Paris. So we've talked around him a bit. Let's talk about the the biggest name, I guess. Yeah. Salvador Dali himself. Okay. He arrived a bit late to the party, like we said, 1929. Uh, He was self-consciously eccentric for years and years before he met any surrealists. He grew that trademark mustache before he even left Spain. And his bravado and his self-puffery. Mm-hmm. As a surrealist, he developed the paranoiac critical method, where he would try to induce a paranoid state to deconstruct the concept of identity. That does not sound healthy. Uh, one of the ways he would do this is by standing on his head for so long that it was medically unwise. Did he- not sound healthy. No, no. But you can see like, results of it in the multiple images and optical illusions in many of his works. Mm -hmm. Like, there's always somebody watching you from inside his paintings, right? Very paranoid. Yes. Uh, He was first expelled from the group in 1934 for refusing to denounce fascism, and he retorted, I myself am surrealism. Which is a real big claim to make in 1934. Yeah. But in 2018, like... Pretty close, honestly. <laughs> like, the, the the average person's understanding, it's it's melting clocks, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what surrealism is. Uh, he later painted several works inspired by a fascination with Hitler. <laughs> one of them is one of those, like, paranoiac, critical, optical illusions where, like, this warped, 
uh, reflected uh, um, lakeside landscape, if you turn it sideways and tilt it a bit, it is uh, Hitler's nose to chin. Oh. Including the mustache, obviously. That's weird. It's very weird. That That's not okay. After rejoining the group's good graces, somehow. Apparently uh, you didn't look at the painting sideways. Yeah. Well, that painting didn't come out till the 50s. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was cast out again in 1939, uh, where Breton gave him a nickname, uh, Evita Dollars. It, it was an anagram of Salvador Dali. Very, very clever. Mm-hmm. Because of his drive for fame and fortune. From then on, some of his former peers spoke about him only in the past tense, as if he had died. <laughs> they really were shunning him. Yeah, and and so later in life, when he was asked about this sort of thing, he replied, the only difference between me and the Surrealists is it that I am a Surrealist. Ooh! Oh! Burn! He liked that sort of uh, uh, phrasing. Another one of his quotes is, the only difference between me and a madman is I am not mad. Like, okay. Couldn't anybody say that? Like, I get what you're going for. That one's not, that doesn't work the same, dude. Yogi Berra did it better. How about that? Uh, (laughs) But even so, he's the most successful, prolific, and by far famous surrealist. Uh, Most notable as a painter, but he was a sculptor, a jeweler, he did scenic design, he was a writer, he was an architect, he did fashion design, he did photography, he collaborated on several films, like he he did a dream sequence for for Hitchcock in the 40s. In 1946, he collaborated with Walt Disney on an animated short called Destino. Hmm. Uh, They they did the uh, storyboards together, and then with the... Uh, financial hit that the war and post-war years did on the Walt Disney Studio. Yeah. And they're focused more on what makes money? Cinderella. Let's do more fairy tales. Yeah. This weirdo film was shelved until 2003 when it was uh, taken out of mothballs by Roy E. Disney and given to some French animators, like, here's some storyboards, figure it out. <laughs> you can find it in a few places, including uh, later releases of Fantasia 2000. Oh. He was also the only surrealist to, to do commercial work. He designed the logo for the Chupa Chups suckers. Oh. Yeah. It's a good logo, but I wouldn't call it surrealism. <laughs> uh, he appeared in television ads for chocolates. They threw him out for being a sellout, and then he did TV ads. Like, come on now. They just knew. (laughs) They knew. knew where it was going. He died in 1989. René Magritte, perhaps the second most famous surrealist painter. No, if you limit it to painters, definitely Magritte, second most famous. Uh, But before he was a surrealist, he was an impressionist. He was a cubist. He was a futurist. He was... He just went with whatever was hip and happening. Yeah, and he he dabbled in them all, but surrealism had the biggest impact on on everything he did in the decades following compared to those those earlier influences. In 1927, he moved to Paris to work with Breton and the others, and he's the best of them at the juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. Right. He survived uh, in German-occupied and post-war Belgium, by painting forgeries, though. Oh. He, he didn't find his uh, an audience for his art until the 60s, but a guy's got to eat. Yeah. So he made fake Picassos. He made fake Chiricos. He made fake money. 
<laughs> That's right. He was a cash counterfeiter. Nice. Uh, his single most famous piece, The Treachery of Images, that's the painting of a pipe, and below it says, this is not a pipe in French, Th- that harkens back to the Dada roots of the movement, the the puncturing of boundaries, the, the ironic sense of humor Yeah. that surrealism has, but not nearly as much as Dadaism. He died in 1967 in Belgium. Uh, but Surrealism's influence lasted way, way longer than Breton's happy circle of French artists. Yeah. They all mostly went their way uh, as, as war was looming in Europe. But uh, the ones that went to America, especially those who, who were curated by Peggy Guggenheim, provided the, the inspiration for abstract expressionism. It took their focus on the individual unconscious art and developed new techniques to that end, like Jackson Pollock strip paintings, for instance. Mm-hmm. But the big difference is it removed the drive to engage in collective action to, to influence society. Abstract expressionism takes no political or social stance at all. Yeah. Which is why the CIA encouraged it so much. Yeah. That's a future episode, I think. Uh, pr- probably. Probably. Yeah. Uh, the postmodernists and, and the beat generation carry a lot of surrealist influence, and so does magical realism. Hmm. Uh, especially the Latin American roots of magical realism. We wouldn't have Jose Rivera without surrealists. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They continue to shape theater through the theater of cruelty and all of the reactions to it and against it. Very, very few productions were ever made in line with the theater of cruelty. Mm -hmm. But the the theory of it, the writing about it, has had a huge influence since. Yeah. Uh, So Samuel Beckett, big fan of the Surrealists and translated a lot of their poetry and their automatic writing himself. Surreal humor, pretty much the biggest thing going today. Yeah. So, I mean, enjoy that. Hot pockets, but they're cold. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) How weird is it that Andre Breton broke a guy's arm for insulting Picasso, tried to, to institute a complete and total revolution of the social order, and maybe the the greatest contemporary of that movement is people over compressing images they found on Instagram. Yeah. What in the world? <laughs> I wonder what he'd think about all that. It seems he'd break some arms probably. It depends on the day, man. Like if they credited him, I think that he'd really be into it. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're not saying you're the surrealist. <laughs> we got 15 guys and we all have canes. <laughs> So, darling, what have you learned? Don't mess with a dude in a cane. <laughs> Goodness. This was back when art movements meant something. This was back before he, like, when you could, like, beat people up and no one would really do anything and you'd still be the head of your art movement. <laughs> I mean, that still happens now, but... <laughs> the The main thought I have after this is the way I think most people remember surrealism Mm -hmm. and goes for a lot of art is by the paintings Mm -hmm. and the sculptures and i feel like probably a lot of people don't know that there were other aspects to it Mm -hmm. and it's a little different than like say dada where so much more of it is moments 
Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not things that last. It's not things that continue on. Like, right. sure, the writings do, but it was a lot more about, like, spectacle mm-hmm. and performance, where surrealism, what most people think about is a painting. Yeah. Who would think of surrealism as, oh, yeah, that research office where people put their dream journals? Yeah. Yeah. Like, no no one, that's not what you're taught. Yeah. Like, that's not going to be the first thing you're taught. That's not going to be your first exposure to it. I mean, not to say that it's forgotten because we just talked about it, <laughs> but how, say, one person's take on an art movement can, can kind of control the way the general public remembers it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if Breton made a bunch of money, maybe we would all think of it as a literary movement of automatic writing. Yeah. And then he would design the Chupa Chups logo and it would just be a lot of words. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that's a good example in comparing this to like a different one, like mm-hmm. different art mm-hmm. movement. You, you would expect the surrealists to be a bunch of weirdos. Oh, yeah. And they mostly were. Yeah. But they were weirdos who were helping French resistance soldiers bomb tanks. Yeah. So, like, I'm down with it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So with that, we're going to take another quick break and be back with letters and such. Woo! read some letters okay our first letter is from sarah who started listening from the beginning but lost touch with us for a while and is now back yay as a first-time writer yay and is glad to be back and that's about all sarah has to say (laughs) but thank you so much for listening sarah and thank you for the pictures of the doggies and the kitty cats and the robot yes pictures are good thanks sarah Sam writes in with another favorite Australian, Joseph Johns, uh, better known as Moondai Joe, uh, who's a prisoner that has successfully escaped from prison five times. That's a lot. It's a lot. The the prison he was sent to was, was run by Governor John Hampton, a, a sadistic jailer. Uh, so there were a lot of escape attempts, but nobody did it quite as well or quite as often as Moondine Joe. But every time he would escape, he'd eventually get caught, which means spending more time in prison, just this loop of tragedy. Mm-hmm. But the last time he was taken in, uh, there was a new warden in town who treated their inmates, you know, like people and stuff. What? So he served out the remainder of his sentences quietly and and lived as a model prisoner for another 30 years. (laughs) And as for the best Girl Scout cookie, it's gotta be Thin Mints. Thanks, Sam. (laughs) Claritic writes back in again, noting that I did not... Give a prompt. So she provided something that doesn't exist. Uh, (laughs) The so-called Leakly Bible, the the show planning document for an American Doctor Who revival from the 1990s that did not come to be. Uh, The the 1996 TV movie was meant to be sort of a, a backdoor pilot for this series. So this show Bible leaked, which is not why it's called the Leakly Bible. It was written by a guy named Leakly, 
a television oh. writer. I really thought it was because it, it leaked. No, that's just the world we live in. Yeah. Uh, so so you can see just this uh, perspective of somebody who enjoys television drama and has this big well of, you know, 26 years of TV stories to draw on, but didn't grow up with them. Mm-hmm. So, like, I like this bit. Uh, this can change this way. That's garbage. And so... <laughs> It has a very, very different shape and a very different feel and honestly a very 90s America take on what Doctor Who could have been. So thanks, Claritic. Chris has caught up on our episodes and is, of course, like, there's no prompt. Uh, But that's okay. Uh, You're right. It is okay. That's okay. Uh, Chris is a longtime listener of yours. Aw, thank you. I think this is a unique way. Found Sex Archie via your Chipata Rodicast before coming to History Honeys. What's up? That is, I like it. (laughs) I feel like it's a rare way to go, but I like it. Answers the last prompt of favorite cookie, uh, being the newest one, the lemon cookies, with Thin Mints being a close second. Maybe these are different lemon cookies because they had a lemon cookie when I was a Girl Scout. And it was gross. <laughs> it was, I think it was like the, sh- the low sugar or fat. F- mm-hmm. It was some like healthier one. It was like a lemon sandwich thing. It was bad. How dare they make healthy cookies? Where do they get off? Well, it didn't taste good. Yeah. It had like not sugar in it or something. Um, so I'm hoping these are different ones and they're better. <laughs> also, uh, Chris says that they were a, a kid who thought history class was boring, but we have proven them wrong. <laughs> And also sent some wonderful pictures of their mini schnauzers, uh, Heidi, Sable, and Harry. Aww. They're, they're very cute. They're very sweet. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thanks to everybody who, who writes in and keeps in touch. If you would like to send an email, uh, where can those go? Those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear anything that you'd like to send and might want to hear read. So things like stories, corrections, questions, and our, our regular prompt responses. Mm-hmm. Darling, what would you like to hear? So next episode will be kind of like our anniversary of doing this two years yeah so this is a special prompt (laughs) you help decide our future so the the prompt is i want a show suggestion like Mm -hmm. something maybe you've been dreaming of for a long time for us to cover something new you've recently come across something you just think it'd be fun for me to talk about whatever i will pick one of those to be the next episode oh and any other so- show suggestions, we'll just keep around. Yeah. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I will pick. We still look at the, the ones we have saved. Yes, we do. But that, that is the prompt. A show suggestion. Some lucky writer is going to get to, to start year number three or close year number two. I'm not sure which. I don't know exactly where the day <laughs> falls, but yeah. 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 So you can send those to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and while you're out there, why not get in touch on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram? And those are all at History Honeys. Uh, also giving us a, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, wherever else you found us, does so much to help the show. Mm-hmm. You can also tell a friend. Tell those friends. Word of mouth really helps other people find us. You could also be like, hey, hey, they might read my prompt. That might be the episode. <laughs> That's true. One of you is about to be the most minor kind of celebrity. Yeah. 
In other news, the second season of Riverdale has wrapped. Mm-hmm. So now is the perfect time to catch up on Sex Archie. The second season is all going up on Netflix on the 24th, Thursday. Yes. So you have our show, Sex Archie, as a companion for every single episode. We'll uh, watch it along with you and talk about how much fun it was or missteps. Yeah. <laughs> there have been some. Yeah. Not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> along with our, our, our usual uh, observations and, and segments and all the fun we love to have at Sex Archie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Coming up, though, uh, we just got back from a trip you might remember. Yeah. Us announcing on our Cedar Point episode that I was secretly planning a vacation trip. And and we did that. Yeah. We just got home. Just a couple days ago. So uh, we're going to be putting together a real quick sort of uh, bonus episode about our time, about seeing up close and personal some of the the historical landmarks they have there. Mm -hmm. Also just freaking out about some of the roller coasters we went on. They're so good. Oh, my God. (laughs) Their top five are all so good. That's why it's not a part of this episode, because it won't all be about history. (laughs) So uh, I I don't have a date in mind for that, but look for that in the near future. Yep. So with all that business handled, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.